Starting, scaling, and exiting a business is hard. So why do some companies achieve seven, eight, and nine-figure exits, while others struggle to reach six figures in revenue? To answer these questions, we sit down with top entrepreneurs who have exited for more than $10 million or currently run $10 million-plus businesses and grill them until they share their proven tactics and strategies. Welcome to Beyond Eight Figures. That's what I thought. She's been living with bees this whole time and finally decided <laughs> enough is enough. There will be no more bees in my life. Interesting. All right. Well, then there you have it. Uh, so really, uh, really good to, to see all of you. Hope all is well. Um, I would be remiss uh, to not acknowledge the uh, the challenging times that we're, that we're facing. Um, and, you know, on Reinvention Radio, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, and let me just say this, at, at some point here, we may or may not be joined by, uh, by our guest today. So if we're not, no worries. We've got plenty to talk about on the Beyond Eight Figures front. And if we are, then we'll bring him on and we'll go from there. Um, but one of the things that I did want to uh, chat with you about, uh, there's so many things I actually want to chat with you about. And I actually don't mind if it's just me and you today, to be honest with you, because uh, you know, you've always got so much great insight into the world of emerging technologies and, and just, you know, every, just, you take a, a really great macro uh, view of kind of where things are at uh, from a business perspective and technology perspective and so on and so forth. Um, so I actually would be perfectly content with, uh, with our just chatting here. And, and if you guys are hanging with us on Facebook, uh, and watching us live there. And Kelly, um, if you can share it uh, on some of the main feeds and all, that would be great as well. Uh, I'd love to get your questions as we go through this as well. So we actively encourage we encourage your active participation uh, as well. And we do broadcast uh, live on Thursdays uh, from 12 until 2 Pacific. We do our reinvention radio show and we do our Beyond Eight Figures uh, shows live on Thursday. So we do encourage you to join us uh, on Facebook, and uh, that's where we broadcast. So, so Rich, let me um, let me jump into things here with you, and I'll, I'll try to keep an eye on the questions in the Facebook feed as well. Uh, again, just for questions that come in there as we dig into the discussion. Um, but you know, one of the things that I've seen right now, which is really really interesting, um, is just this whole conversation around uh, obviously what's going on uh, with the the rioting and and with George Floyd and uh, you know and so on and. Uh, and rightly so. I mean, obviously, this is a conversation that we need to be having. Uh, and there's been an interesting uh, bit of backlash in the business community around those that have not um, really spoken out and and taken a position. And you're starting to see some folks take positions, and then they get just absolutely railed for for the positions that they take. And so uh, I've seen some, some backlash, some pretty heavy backlash, actually, against, uh, against a few folks that are fairly well known in the space, uh, Marie Forleo, uh, Russell Brunson, um, and others, at least as far as the internet marketing world is concerned. And, and it's been really interesting because um, there, there's been, an int- uh, let's just say there's been an, uh, an inordinate amount of silence coming from a lot of brands. And when you're looking at, at things now in terms of, you know, you have to be a leader, people are looking to you for guidance, they're looking to you for, you know, your stance, your ideas, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it is interesting to me because so many folks are just afraid of taking a position because it almost seems like you're between a rock and a hard place. And so um, I'm curious, 
in terms of what you were seeing people do, maybe what people have done well that you're saying, and it's just like, okay, that was a good example of, of what to do. Uh, and perhaps some examples of what not to do. And also, just in terms of, do you, do you do anything, right? Because from where I sit, I would not say that, that, that silence equates to being complicit. I, I don't believe that if you are, are silent in terms of not taking a position or not doing a long blog post or long video or whatever, it, it doesn't equate to your being complicit about what's going on. So there are a lot of people who are saying that there, you know, there are companies, corporations, and, and you know, people who are more brands, you know, kind of the dancing bears, so to speak, you know, who have those singular personality type brands, um, who aren't making a, a statement, aren't putting anything forth here. Uh, and in doing so, they're being complicit to what's going on. So it's a very long way of asking you, what have you seen uh, that you, you can uh, vote for? What have you seen that you would vote against? Uh, and what do you do if you're a business at this moment in time right now? There's so many, so many ways to answer that, right? Um, to your point real quick about sometimes, you know, we've almost been taught if, if you don't know exactly what to say, don't say something. Or if you yeah. can't say something kind, right? How many different versions of that have you? And I've literally seen every side of the coin from uh, a white person standing up and saying something that they're against it and then getting harassed because they've been opportunist or, and the same person's also getting thanked. And it's like, it's, it's just such an, interesting time it's 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 we've been doing so many things via tweet and via text that i think unless we could sit down and have a whole conversation and really get the context behind the comment and i mean you name it from it's it's just it's just really hard and and for yeah. me what's been hard is um i don't really know what to say i've never yeah. been for it ever it being um racism or being oppressing a certain race of any kind or gender of any kind or any of anything right yeah but but now it's if it's like if you're anti even people going out and breaking things and wrecking things you're 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 not understanding in some people's minds yeah. Um, it just, it's, it's just a very interesting time. And I just, I feel for the people who are hurting um, and that have been hurting for a long time. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah. I just don't really know. It's, it seems like no matter what you say, someone likes it and someone hates it. Yeah. No matter who you are. Yeah. And, and it's interesting too, because when you, I'm, I'm I'm actually going to do a blog post. I'm going to run it by my wife first because she's always a great litmus test for whether or not I should say some of the things that I'm thinking about saying. Um, but, you know, it is one of those things where, you know, if you, if you have to tell someone you're not a racist, you probably are. You know, I mean, it's just as, as sad as it is to say, if you say, I'm not a racist, you, you know, it's not about words, it's about actions, you know, and don't, don't tell me who you are, what you stand for, show me, right? 
And, and, you know, and to that end, it's really an interesting conversation because it's, it almost boils down to, you know, do, do we as, as a society, it's like, it's like with your kids, you know, when, when your kids act poorly, it's often because they, you know, it's a cry for attention, right? It's like they, they want more of you. They, they're acting poorly because it seems like the negative behavior is rewarded with more attention oftentimes for kids. And so in this case, as, as we look at what's going on, it just is a crying shame to me that the only way we get people's attention is through this, this negative behavior. Like what? So now you're going to pass civil rights laws that frankly have been in place for however long they've been in place, but now you're going to pay more attention and you're going to pass these, the, what, these new laws perhaps because people are acting up and because people are destroying things and people are doing what they're doing. Right. And so, so you can't reward that behavior either, though it's certainly justifiable and I certainly understand it. Right. And, and you can make a case for why it's needed, why it's necessary and why people are doing what it is that they're doing. And so it's just a very interesting period of time here where when historically, when you look at situations where it requires some sort of, of leadership position and people to step up and say, hey, you know, this is our position. You're either going to look at us as a leader and you take the position we take, or you're going to stand on the other side of this. But very few corporations, very few businesses seem to be willing to take a position. A lot of the stuff that I've seen right now are just such vanilla bullshit, Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it is, it's just, it's like, it's like they sat in a room and basically decided what is the, 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 the most innocuous thing that we can put forth to cover our ass in some, in some sort of way here, where it says that we actually responded to what's going on. But what they put forth and to your point is potentially even worse than not doing anything at all. Mm-hmm. So let me let me do this. We're, 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 we got Will on. Uh, Will, go ahead and unmute yourself and have you come into the conversation here. Will Moore, how are you doing, my friend? What's going on? Hey there, guys. Great. How are you? I apologize. I um, I'd gotten a cancellation message from another show I was going to be on. I thought it was you guys. So sorry for being a little bit late here. Thanks for having hey. me. No worries. Appreciate you being on. And what um, what we what we've been talking about, and you can bring some great insight to this as well. Um, is just, you know, it's kind of the damned if you do, damned if you don't type approach in terms of how do you respond from a corporate perspective to, to what's going on as a corporation? Do you, do you take a stance? Do you take a position? Do you leave well enough alone? Um, because it, it's kind of a damned if you do and a damned if you don't. Right. And you've got a lot of experience here. Um, and we'll talk about your, your business acumen and the things that you've done. And you had a, a pretty substantial exit and so on. But if you, um, if you were in the, let's say you were leading uh, a Fortune 500 company right now, what, what would you advise them to do insofar as speaking to the obvious situation that we're all so well aware of? So this is actually really, really good question and a really important topic. And, you know, to me, this is kind of where the rubber meets the road with people. Um, I had a similar, I was on a... Um, an interview yesterday and we were talking and we kind of had a similar conversation, not quite the same, but from a, a, an individual perspective on, on what's the stance you take damned if you do damned if you don't. 
and it kind of applies, I think, to this to corporate as well. And what it made me think of is, I don't know, have you seen that Taylor Swift documentary? This is probably going to sound out of left field, but have you seen that? Um, I, I can't. I wouldn't be able to look my boys in the face if I said that I had. So no. <laughs> well, it, it, Taylor Swift. I'll tell you, it, as 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 um, many things are said about her, and and you know she. We all have our things. Uh, I enjoy her music, and my wife does. We actually watched her documentary, and I got to tell you, if you watch that, you'll see somebody with some character. And I was extremely um, inspired by the way she handled it. So it didn't apply to this exact situation, but it's parallel. She got to a point in in her in her career in her life where she was having some serious moral issues with not speaking up about our president and some of the things that were going on. Now I'm not sitting here trying to get political and, yeah. you know, get into which side is better, but her particular side was, I do not agree with things that are going on. And as a celebrity that has a voice that can actually make a change and people are going to listen to, and I can make a difference on, she decided. And it was funny. They literally, there was this moment in the documentary where they were, all of her advisors were around her, right? And yeah. it was it was like straight out of a movie, but this was it was legit. And they're basically like, "Look, do you really want to go down that road? You've got a huge fan base, probably about fifty percent of them. You may lose your, you may risk alienating." And she said, "You know what? I can't live with myself, and I can't sleep in the morning without speaking up about the way that I feel." Yeah. And so she came out, and I think we all know. Well, maybe you don't, but she, she came out with some pretty powerful statements, and she's continuing to. And I just had a lot of respect for the fact that she said, you know what, this is in my heart and my soul, and this is what's important to me. And if I don't speak my truth, and, you know, yeah, I'm going to risk alienating people. Like you started this conversation, damned if you do, damned if you don't. But if you keep quiet, to me, that's, that speaks way louder than anything else. And I think mm -hmm. that's the point here. And if you don't say anything, because you want to play it safe and you don't want to alienate people to me that that's not my style. That's not how I've ever rolled. And, you know, I know it, it is, it, it's, it's kind of the culture and the society we live in. People don't want to alienate and you see so many people just keeping quiet, not saying things. And yeah. to me, I, I just, I'll be honest, I don't have a ton of respect for that. And I'm not saying yeah. and there's a way to do things and there's a way to be respectful about your points and there's a way to get your, your message across using profanity and getting people's hot buttons raised, you know, but to do it in a respectful, classy, business-like way um, and calculated way, to me, regardless of how you speak, I think that people will respect that. Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. And uh, appreciate your perspective on it. And let's let's take a couple of steps back. And and by the way, where you were sitting right now looks very much like uh, we used to have a summer home in uh, Southwest Michigan when we lived in Chicago. And I'm uh, in Michigan. Are you? That I was going to say that looks like a Michigan Inland Lake to me, brother. Where are you? So uh, we are on Central Lake, which is outside of Traverse City. Um, I'm okay. on my first vacation I've taken in quite a long time. I'm with my wife and her family. They've had this small little cottage. Uh, for years and years, and we've been coming up since since I met my wife for the last about five six years. We've been coming up here, nice. and I got to tell you, I know I hate to I hate to do this in a time when I know well, there's a lot of suffering and a lot of people out there. But this is my truth right now, and I'm not going to hide it. Um, yeah. I'm, I, I'm in a beautiful environment right now, and I'm extremely lucky to be here. 
Yeah. Yeah. I miss Southwest Michigan for sure. We're in San Diego now, but that looks spot on to, we had a seven and a half acre piece out there with about 300 feet of private beach. And you know, one of the inland lakes. It was Good gorgeous. eye. Good eye, man. Yeah. That's pretty impressive yeah. from what you're seeing to be able to call that. <laughs> so let's, um, and, and, and well-deserved, obviously, man, you've worked hard to, to get to where you are. And, uh, and I want to take a step back the $321 million exit. So that was just to be clear, that was doorstep delivery because you've done other things, but that was doorstep, correct? Yes. Yeah, so doorstep delivery was right. That's, that's been my most financially successful business. And yeah, we merged with a company called Bite Squad back in uh, around 2000 and 2006, probably. And then, yeah, we, we just exited this past year. For the for the 321, we we realized at a certain point that we couldn't compete with the Grubhubs and the Uber Eats and the these companies that had billions of dollars. And you know, we started with nothing. We bootstrapped it. Me and my my partners. Uh, we said, you know what, this just seems like a good idea. I, at the time, I was selling real estate, which is another business I had, and I I was working for another company at the time. And I saw that we were trapped in an office with no no food other than pizza and Chinese. And this was back right before the, uh, another historical time in our country when we had that real estate boom. And it was right on that precedent. It's like 2005 and six and seven, right before the crash. And yeah. we, our phones are ringing off the hook. We were selling land way out in the middle of nowhere, Ocala, Florida, and, and these places, thousands of acres. And we literally could not leave. And I was like, there's gotta be something better than pizza and Chinese. And there wasn't. And so we started mm -hmm. this company. We had zero competition for about eight years. And then all of a sudden, you know, they started coming out of the woodwork, the Uber Eats and the Grubhubs with billions of dollars in funding and, you know, determined to lose money in order to gain market share. And we knew we couldn't compete with that. So we partnered up with another company, similar size. We raised money. We started gulping up smaller companies that were in those tier two, tier three cities that the big yeah. guys hadn't gotten to yet. So not the New Yorks, the LAs, the Chicagos, but the Nashvilles, the Orlandos, the um, you know, these, these smaller towns and that's where we dominated and we were able to get enough of a, a foothold to, to exit. So it was, it was fortunate. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so for those uh, of you who have listened to the show before, and, and you know that the, the, the question that we usually come out of the gate with is, you know, how do you meet the criteria for being on beyond eight figures? And will, you may not be familiar with this, but on our show, uh, we exclusively sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million annually. And so for those of you who are wondering, that is how Will meets the criteria. Um, so I want, I want to take a couple of steps back first and then move forward into as, uh, as much of the details around the, uh, you know, the, the exit, the event, uh, as, as we can here. So you started out with the idea. So just take us back through the embryonic stages and the starting scale here. So it was just you and a buddy and you guys just had this idea or just take us back through the origin story. So it was literally probably 2000, let's see, the, I think we crashed 2007-ish, late 2007. So it was right, it was literally probably three or four months before that. And I saw the writing on the wall and that we were, so we're, I told you, we're selling these parcels and I won't get into a, a long story about it because it, it is a, it could be a whole show. It was a truly amazing situation, what we did. The short of it is, have you ever seen that movie Far and Away with Cole Kidman and Tom Cruise? 
I don't think I've seen that. Have you seen so, that? Rich? Well, I haven't yeah. seen that. Yeah. There's a scene at the end of the movie where there's this land rush. It was sent back sent back in the 1800s. So I'm not sure if you're familiar, but basically the United States at some point they were trying to get everybody out west. Everybody was migrating into Staten Island, and they were trying to get people out west. So they our country literally gave land away. And the way they would do it is they'd have these big land rushes and they would have everybody lined up in a row and they would put these parcels out and they'd put stakes in the ground and whoever, and then they would basically fire a gun and say, go. And whoever got to that parcel first, it was a race and put their stake and grab that stake. That was theirs. And that's, mm. that's literally how we expanded into the West. And our company was kind of similar. So we would buy these thousands of feet. Uh, acres of land and we would subdivide it into these parcels five ten twenty sometimes hundred acre parcels but instead of horses we had suvs and we would line up in a row and on the walkie talkie our boss would say okay go and we would just take off and whoever had their part we had parcel stickers and said lot one lot two and whoever basically put their sticker on that parcel is the one that got that piece of land and they weren't free we had to come back and we had a banker at the tent and they would sign the papers and the documents and whatnot so it was a really insane job. Like if, it, you couldn't script it more. When, I, when people told, when I was interviewing for it and um, people, my friends told me what it was, I said, that can't be real, but it was. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. but that was what I was telling you earlier. So then we were stuck in this office and I remember sitting out in Lake Yola. I was in Orlando at the time. Lake Yola is this famous, uh, or our main lake right in the middle of the city. And I was with my girlfriend at the time and we were staring up at these new brand new condos going up. I mean, there was probably 20 of them because this is during the boom when everything was going up and things are just expanding like crazy. And I remember thinking, what do all these people need? What kind of business can I make? Because this real estate thing ain't going to last forever. It's getting too frothy. And it just hit me. Food delivery. People need to eat. And I'm a healthy guy. And here I was. I was stuck in the office. All I could eat was pizza and Chinese. And I was like, I want sushi. I want Thai. I want salads. I want all these awesome things. And the fact that I couldn't get them, I said, I, I want to figure out a way to do it. So I grabbed my best friend that worked with me at the time and we said, okay. I said, Hey, are you interested? At first he said, no. He said, I don't think there's enough money in it. And he came around after about two, three weeks and we both quit, quit our job at Florida land partners, which was literally like a month before the crash started this company and just never looked back. Hmm. Yeah. Rich, let me give you an opportunity to jump in here. Cause I know you always have a ton of questions and I, Tend to hog. So let me, let me, keep no, it's all, it's all good. Um, a quick comment on the real estate stuff first. So it's brilliant though, because it was a form of gamification, right? Like it was, they still had to buy the land, but it was, Hey, you know, you get to rush out as fast as you can and find the piece that's got the view you like. And oh yeah. It's, uh, you better believe it. Hope of gain, fear of loss, my man. Yeah, they, no, the, that's, the people that's... that ran that company knew exactly what they were doing. So mm. we would be sold out in, in less than five minutes. You know, I'm talking about hundreds of parcels uh, sold out, and people. And this was the first time slot, so we'd have a nine o'clock time slot, a twelve o'clock, a two o'clock, and a four o'clock. So you had people driving hours and hours to get there, and if they, if we got sold out at that nine o'clock and that first group of people and it was a lottery by the way what time slot you got right so people would sign up for appointments and then it would be a lottery on, in terms of whether you get the nine o'clock 12 o'clock and the fact that we sold out that quickly you better believe those people that were at the 12 o'clock and the two o'clock and the four o'clock at the next sale we had we're gonna we're, we're bright and early signing up and making sure that they were you know had the best chance of getting those early time slots so you're absolutely right it was a gamification and it was a 
you know, at the time everybody won because we actually had people that would buy their parcels at 9 a.m., turn them and flip them around to the 12 o'clock people uh, for 100, great. 200 grand profit. It was just absolutely wow. insane. So, so one of the things that's really un- unique about that, but it's happening all the time, is the story that you tell prior. So here was the real estate market just flying, flying high, right? And five years prior, or maybe not even five, five years prior, people couldn't qualify for an RV or excuse me, for a, for a SUV. And now they're buying houses, right? Because we had like no docs, no interest, stated income, you got it. right? Like it's like a, in hindsight, it's obvious it's a recipe for a disaster. Um, but the story that was being told and, and kind of like when things are going on in the world, it, we always hear buy low, sell high, but sometimes people don't, the, the fear of loss is almost more important. So I want to take the lessons learned from that into here you are, you saw the writing on the wall, maybe not exactly how it was going to unfold, but you knew it wasn't going to last. And so you quit, you started this new thing. But a lot of people don't realize how challenging, even though it sounds simple, what you were going to do, it's very challenging because it's a two-sided marketplace. You have to get all the restaurants to agree to do it. And you have to get the people to agree that that they want someone else to go pick up their food that's not even part of the realist, um, excuse me, the restaurant to touch their food in between. Like, again, in hindsight, when we're going through what we're going through, seems like a no-brainer. But what what was the story you told in the beginning? And then what was the thing that got you momentum the fastest? Did you pick a certain kind of restaurant or how did you get both sides to believe in what you were doing? That's a really great question. And, and I, I want to touch briefly on what you started this with, which was, um, you know, the, these, these, these people were, well, I won't divert. I'll go right into that. So, it was a huge challenge. You know, right now, everybody's familiar with food delivery, right? And now it's just a matter of what, what company you're going to pick. When I, you know, which one you're going to choose? Who's going to send you? Who's sending you that $20 coupon in the mail? And you're like, okay, I'm going to use these guys this week. Um, nobody. It was completely novel. And it was a huge hill to overcome to not only get the restaurants to agree, because all of a sudden, all right, imagine you're a restaurant, right? You're walking in and their food's like, you think about it as their baby. You know, it's like, that's their baby. And you're basically saying, hey, do you mind if I borrow, if I just kind of take your baby out and, and do my thing with it? Trust me, I, it's totally cool. I know what I'm doing. You know, I was like, we got 99% no's from the restaurants when we first started doing. It was extremely difficult to convince a restaurant. But the model that we used, which truly ended up being the secret to our success, I think, was this essentially win-win scenario where when we really broke it down, they couldn't really argue, which was essentially, hey, listen, you guys have your food cost, your overhead, and your labor, right? And so when we bring you an order, your labor and your overhead, those don't change, right? Like your staff and all these, you've still got to have those people in the office, whether we bring, or excuse me, in the restaurant, your, your cooks, your, your waiters, your to-go staff, whether we're there or not bringing you an order 
your overhead, your utilities, your, your rent, all these things, they're fixed costs, whether we bring you an order or not. The only thing that's changing when we bring you an order is you do have to pay that food cost, right? So, okay, so that's, and that's typically around 25 to 30% per restaurant. So our commission was around 30%. And so when you initially tell a restaurant, hey, our, our commission's 30%, they about, their head pops off. They're like, 30%, my margins, I only make, you know, 20% on, on every order. And you say, okay, hold on, hold on. But you're already paying, this is an incremental sale because you're already paying your overhead, your, your utilities, your rent, your staff. It's just your food costs at 30%. So if we come in and we bring you an order and it's a 30% discount, that still leaves a 40% profit margin right? Because it's, it's our discount plus 30% food costs. And then it's at 40%. They say, well, I got my, you know, I still got to pay my staff and stuff. You're like, yeah, but you're already doing that. And unless we're bringing you so much business that you have to hire extra people, which would actually still be a good thing because you'd still be making money. We're only bringing you incremental sales and that's how we did it. And that's what we were able to convince them on. And ultimately, you know, it's the momentum. I think you're, one of you guys mentioned that's, that's how it, that's, that's my whole thing, more momentum. That's what I'm all about now. And it's amazing when you do start to get momentum, how things start to shift. And we would get a couple of big restaurants on board, right? At first it was Chili's. Chili's was our big whale. We got Chili's on board and that's when things changed. It was like, okay, we got a national restaurant on board that's doing it. And then everybody else was like, oh, okay, well, if they're doing it, maybe we should try it. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's doing it. And then you don't want to be the one to get left out. That's, that's when it gets fun. When the restaurants are, are blowing up your phone saying, Hey, my, my, my neighbor over here is making, you know, doing two, $3,000 a day in business from you guys. Can I sign yeah. up? So yeah. that was on the restaurant side. And then, you know, the customer side, it was definitely, uh, you know, a not, you know, fortunately there was, like I said, there's, there's pizza in Chinese. So it's not like people had never ordered, before but i think it was definitely difficult at first for people to be like wait i can get sushi how do i know it's gonna be fresh how do i know and we had these double thick thermal insulated bags and we had precautions in place to make sure that the food went straight from the restaurant to the customer they opened it up in front of the customer and because we were able to do that consistently and deliver a a solid experience and don't get me wrong they were it was they weren't all perfect it's impossible to do that but an, enough of a solid experience, consistent experience. I think people started, that's when you get word of mouth going. You say, Hey, I ordered sushi from Bento the other day and it was fantastic. And then the neighbor goes, really? And then that's how things start to take off. Yeah. So talk, talk about scale. So first of all, you, so you bootstrap this thing. So it was you and it was one, it was one other partner. So it was you and one partner. It was me and my best friend that I was working with at Florida land partners. And yeah. we actually ended up, rather than try to reinvent the wheel, we went and looked to see, is anybody else doing this is mm-hmm. around? And mm-hmm. there was a guy that was doing it out of Gainesville, Florida. Uh, it was called gatorfood.com. And we ended up finding him, talking to him. And he's like, yeah, I'm doing this. And we're like, is there, do you guys want to try to potentially do something together? And at first he just sold us kind of the formula of, you know, this is kind of the idea of how you go into the restaurant and, and, and partner with them. And we kind of took it to the next level and he saw very quickly cause he actually licensed his software to us too. And when mm. people would order online and then we would send, we, our dispatcher would see it and then they would send it to the driver and then the driver would go pick it up and deliver it. And it, it was crappy software, but it was all it was the only game in town at the time. And he saw, so he saw our back end. He saw how well we started doing and he said, Hey, you guys are killing it. What are you doing? And we said, well, we tweaked this and we did this and then we partnered with him. 
And then that's mm -hmm. when we started opening up uh, corporate locations and franchises. So there was three. So there was three of you then at that point, and you guys are Excuse all third. And third well, third? it was him. He had a partner, so it was him and his partner. Um, so technically, it ended up being four of us were RDD, which is restaurant delivery developers. Got it. And so there's so just so we're clear in terms of the ownership structure. So are you guys all equal partners at this point? Are you all a quarter owner? Yeah, we were all quarter owners. That's exactly right. Yes. Did you bring in any outside capital then to scale or was it just simply through collective efforts and, and bringing in people as needed and that, uh, that allowed you to scale? How did that happen? Yeah, no. So until we partnered with, uh, to, with Bite Squad out of Minneapolis, that's is when we, we raised money when, when those competitors started coming in. But before that, no, we bootstrapped it a hundred percent. Um, the way we started, the way we started doing it and, and being able to afford it, uh, or, or to, to expand was we would actually get an owner operator to buy. Uh, we were doing these franchises. So we did mm -hmm. franchises where there would be the initial 50 to $65,000 franchise fee, or depending on the area, it varied. Um, then we were getting our licensing fees, right? So that, that influx of capital is what allowed us to continue to expand. And then we would use that capital a lot of times to open up our own corporate branch. So yeah, in smart. several of our branches, we found some of the owner or excuse me, some of our man, our, our, our superstar managers in our branches that were like, Hey, you know, yeah, I'd like to go start my own branch up and we would literally, so that's like Jacksonville was our first big one. So we, we actually set up Jacksonville with our GM from our Gainesville location who said, yeah, I'll move out to Jacksonville and do it. And he'd already knew all the ropes and knew everything. So we funded it essentially stuck him out there, gave him a salary, and that's how we grew Jacksonville. And so that's kind of how we slowly, incrementally grew our, our, our uh, amount of locations. Yeah. At the, uh, so at the peak, what were you doing revenue-wise? So we got up to approximately 15, 20, no, 23 million, I think, is where is we that were. With, was that with Byte or before Byte? No, that was before. That so was with before. Byte, Okay. With Byte, we got to we got to over a hundred million, um, hundred maybe one hundred and fifty when we when we sold, and and then that's when we we partnered with or we got bought by a company called Waiter Holdings out of Louisiana, and they were about a hundred and fifty million dollar company, hundred and fifty, so they were equal. So we kind of just kept springboarding, right? So we were about a twenty twenty five million dollar company, and then we partnered with Byte Squad, who was about the same. So then all of a sudden we're fifty, but then we started growing. Uh, we used money. We got, we raised funds and we grew and we started buying companies. And so then we got up to this 150 or so, and then we partnered with them doubled. So then we became this, you know, $300 million company. Yeah. And, and at every juncture you're being diluted, I would think time after time after time, albeit it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a relative dilution in terms of having ownership as it relates to the total value and valuation of the hole that you're moving into and based on what you're able to do insofar as bringing in the outside capital and then reinvesting and growing and, and so on and so forth. So by the time you hit the, the final tranche there, where, where, where were you at from an ownership position in terms of percentage? So I was probably at around, I think we were each around five, 6%. So okay. that still, that still puts me as a, candidate for your show 
uh, I believe, right? <laughs> well, said, well, but the but the the whole entity. I mean, you were obviously involved in the whole entity and growing it. So, I mean, for sure, you are. Um, yeah. So, so to that end, was there an actual liquidation event? The the three hundred twenty million dollar odd exit. Did somebody come in and then buy that that whole? piece or did they take pieces of it or what was yeah so waiter holdings the, bought yeah so yeah waiter holdings bought bite squad which was okay. our combined company which was um doorstep and excuse me yeah doorstep and bite squad we combined and then we started growing it and, and adding locations they bought us for 321 gotcha so was it an they, all stock deal yeah sorry i was just no, saying go we ahead. got you're, half you're cash and then we got half uh, we got half stock. And so Bite Squad, mm -hmm. or excuse me, Waiter Holdings is actually a publicly traded company. Yeah. And you still, so you still hold, um, you still hold ownership in that or did you yeah. divest? Yeah, I still have, I, I actually have not sold, uh, I actually bought more. So it, 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 we had a six month holding period and there was a pretty painful period there for a minute because the, the re it was just kind of bad timing. The restaurant industry or the, excuse me, the RDS restaurant delivery service industry started getting a bad reputation. Um, Grubhub's stocks started falling dramatically and, and Uber came out and, and, you know, everybody was, and they were losing money hand over fist. Ironically. So we were making money. Yeah. Doorstep delivery was a profitable business as was bite squad. Uh, well, towards the end they weren't because they were spending so much money to grow, but, but not, they weren't losing a ton. They were losing very little mm -hmm. waiter on the other hand, was was definitely losing more and um it's no secret you can look it up public records uh there was, it was a bit mismanaged in the beginning so it was a painful period i had a six-month hold on my stock and i had to just watch this thing go from ten dollars down to a very low number fortunately it's on it's on its way back up now they've they've gotten new people in place and there's a new ceo and now they actually just the other day um hired an advisor from uh delivery hero which is one of the largest restaurant delivery services in Europe. So they're, yeah. they're making the right moves now. Um, but for a period, it got a little ugly. So I did get my cash. So they couldn't take that away from me, but it was not fun to watch our stock price dip as much as it did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, interesting. It was peaking, what, around, around 12, 1250, something like that. And then dropped down below a dollar and now it's sitting around two bucks or something like that. And you still have holdings in it. Yeah. 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 And you're, so, and you're right, buying I mean, more. It got down to like 20 some cents. I mean, that wow. was fun. Yeah. Wow. Um, and we actually, right. And so, and that was when just, it was, again, it was just like a, a, a carnage of bad news in the industry overall. It was being priced as a, as a bankrupt company. So hmm. basically, you know, because Grubhub was doing so bad. And then when we, when, when uh, our company was merged with Waiter and they didn't do it in the most efficient way possible, their first couple quarters of earnings were absolutely abysmal because yeah. they, you know, they're, they're, they're paying all these costs to, you know, there's obviously acquisition costs in these things. And if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to get whacked. And that's basically, yeah. you know, not to talk down the company because I think they've done a good job of turning things around and at least recognizing that what was, they were doing wasn't working. But we yeah. actually switched from, we were one of the few companies still left in the country that had a W2 model. And mm -hmm. they finally broke down and they switched to an independent contractor model. And, and since they made that decision, uh, this last earnings was, was, was a good one. And that's when the yeah. stock started to pop. And my personal prediction is that, you know, we're definitely not going bankrupt. And I think that we'll be acquired. I mean, I'm sure you've heard Uber's now talking about acquiring 
Grubhub, and, yeah. and I think it's only a matter of time before our company gets tired as well. Yeah, there are people asking what the ticker signal is. It's trading for $2.10 right now. This is not stock advice. We are not suggesting that you do anything but the- <laughs> hey, Thank but the, you, yes. Yes, yes, but the I mean, but the ticker I've got a lot in it, and I'm holding yeah. mine. That's all I'll say. I'm not the, right. The the ticker symbol is WTRH, and if you look at the the five year trend on it, um, you know, I mean, it looks like there's some upside. But again, we are not in the business of giving stock advice. We can only give you, you know, the, a little bit of the story here. And uh, and yep. and and Will is a shareholder, so he has to fully disclose that, which he did. And there you go. Yeah. Now we're done with the FTC and all that fun stuff. All right. <laughs> Um, so, uh, Richie, let me kick it over to you before, uh, we give Will a chance to wrap up with some of the things that he's doing now, cause there's uh, a lot of really great work that is very near and dear to your heart, Rich, uh, that Will is doing now. But, uh, Rich, uh, another question for Will, as far as the, the business and the scale and uh, all that fun stuff and the exit, any, anything around there that you want to ask? Yeah, again, I'm, I'm sorry we didn't get to talk to you. <clears throat> longer because I could go deep on a few of those things, but it, it seems like you're, you have a pretty good intuition. I don't know if, or, and or great timing by being able to get out of that too, but still participate while holding some stock there because it, it, to me, a lot of what's going on right now with meal delivery and just Uber and Lyft and just other things too, the way the model has changed where there's just big money that'll just throw money to gain audience. Cause everyone knows you need to have attention first before you can sell somebody something. So what's, what's interesting though, I kind of go back to Groupon that Groupon was a glorified um, mailing list and they were, they had the ability at one point to sell for like $6 billion, but no one really looked at it. Like this is a bunch of deal seekers. And so no one's loyal to Groupon or, or excuse me, Grubhub or, or Groupon even, they'll take Living Social and all these different, they're really just deal seekers. Who's, you said it in the very beginning, who's gonna give me my next $20 coupon? That's what's been the problem from meal delivery and all this stuff. So how, what do you see is the, for someone who comes up with a good idea and they're ahead of time, on the, the, the markets, you, so because you were definitely ahead of time, right? There was no um, Grubhub yet. Right, we didn't, have, we didn't have competition. So when you're doing the sweat and tears and blood to get it going, do you see anything that you could have done different in hindsight to maybe um, communicate with those companies like – to, to almost up the value things like you learn from the real estate where gamifying it, like they're, because they're just trying to acquire customers the quick, like Uber in the very beginning, I can't remember the exact number. It was costing 200 plus dollars to get a new rider. And then, then they found out, Oh wow, look, we can gamify this. We're going to give somebody $20 if they get their friend. And then they thought they were gaming Uber. I'm going to take, we'll take my ride for free down to the stadium and then I'll give you your ride. And everyone thought they gamed Uber, but Uber just gained them. It only cost them 40 bucks to get two new customers. So what were some lessons you learned if someone was, they feel like they're ahead of the game, the way they could position themselves when they, when they know the industry is going to get bigger, but they just don't really know how long it's going to take. So are you talking about the customers or are you talking just about the- someone who's starting a business? Right. Cause we're some people right now, we kind of, we don't have our banner with us, but it's, it's um, 
start, scale, scale exit. exit. Yes. <laughs> and so someone who's thinking of starting one right now, learning lessons from what you learned on how to scale something and potentially getting to an exit. So an actual business owner, when we're in all this disruption right now, they're thinking of some new idea. They know they're ahead of time, but they know someone will come in in the future. What were some lessons you learned on how you would structure your business? So you're talking about barriers to entry, yeah. essentially. Um, so right, how to, how to keep the, the competitors. Well, the short answer is if you have a good product, there there's no fail safe solution other than yeah so let me let me let me go into what you were saying at the very beginning nowadays i think that if you have not secure if you have not been using a company for a while one of these companies and you so for we moved to chicago recently we i was i'm from florida but then when i sold my business my wife got into northwestern for physical therapy we just had a kid if you'd asked me five years ago, would I be living in Chicago? I, I would have said, you're out of your freaking mind. Here I am <laughs> sitting in front of it, Lake Michigan. Um, and so, but the key really is, you know, we, we were able to develop those loyal customers. And even though those big players came in, like, so our, our, our biggest markets at the time when we merged with Bite Squad were, Orlando, which was which was my home market, was our biggest. Um, Nashville, um, let's see, I guess it would have been Gainesville. Actually, was still one in Tallahassee, uh, Tampa. So, I will say that even though those companies were coming in and they were throwing those big coupons out, we weren't losing a ton of market share. And I think the reason for that is when you deliver a really great, consistent experience to people. It's just like, it's like what I'm doing right now with more momentum. I'm trying to teach people about habits and how it's you, your whole life is about habits and it's getting rid of the bad ones and, and, and starting and replacing the good ones. And that's kind of what happens with any product you use. And so there's real no, if there's no reason to switch, you know, yeah, you may get a coupon and you may go use that other service because it's 20 bucks. But if you're in the habit of using doorstep delivery and they've provided really good service, especially if when you use that coupon, the guy shows up and he doesn't have a bag, which none of these companies these days use. It's crazy to me. They don't, none of them use these double thick thermal insulated bags. And it's a lot less of a, you know, ours, ours, like I said, you know, we were, our, our people had to wear uniforms and they had these bags. It was just, and they had car toppers. It was a much more, I don't want to use the word professional operation, but from a customer's perspective, it certainly felt a lot more like these guys are investing a lot more time versus just, Oh, this is just an Uber driver who was taking a passenger somewhere. Now he just stopped at a restaurant, to pick my, you know, my bag up. Um, and I do think that goes a long way in any industry that you're in. If you can provide that, that consistent, great experience to a customer, it's going to, it's going to be your best barrier, uh, barrier of entry for other companies coming. And so the, but what I saw, like you said, is, you know, at a certain point, I mean, when you've got, and at this time, Amazon was doing it, right? So, like, literally within three months, we had Uber Eats, Grubhub, DoorDash, and Amazon Prime Delivery. We were doing food delivery. Like, all open up in our some of our, our larger markets, which, again, these aren't tier, tier one markets, but Orlando, Nashville. Uh, you know, at some point, 
you see the writing on the wall when you're not spending billions and like you said, $200 per customer to get each customer. And we said, look, we're not going to long-term be able to compete with this. And we did, I got to tell you, we, we held our own for, for, for as long as we needed to through the transition. It wasn't like they all opened up and boom, our business dropped 80%, right? And because we were able to hold on for as long as we did, you got to think about the fact that we did a merger with Bite Squad. We then had to continue to grow and show that we were growing or at least sustaining in our markets for the next three to four years before we got bought by waiter holdings. So, and I think the reason we were able to do that, and I, some of our markets didn't do quite as well. The ones that were newer, that didn't have that loyal customer base that we had started, they dropped off a lot quicker. Like Denver, we opened up only about a year before the deal and it, it flew by the wayside. We ended up closing Denver. We just didn't have enough time to build that stronghold. But the markets where it was like, everybody talked about like, well, who do you order from? Oh, doorstep delivery, who else? We, yeah. we were able to, to do okay. Yeah. Well, congrats on, on all the success there. And uh, now obviously you get to enjoy the, uh, the beautiful shores of, an, of, and we lost Wilder with this video. Hopefully he'll come back. But, uh, but now you get to enjoy the inland shores of, uh, of an inland lake, of an inland lake in, lake in, in on Michigan there. So congrats on all that yes. fun stuff. Uh, and having Thank lived you. in Chicago for 44 years, um, you'll enjoy the city and, uh, the winters are questionable. So there you have it. But, um, <laughs> Tell me you know, about it, yeah, man. So the work that you're doing now, uh, and we're not gonna have a whole heck of a lot of time to dive into this, but obviously, you know, you, you had the exit, you're a little bit older now, you know, you figured out what's most important to you. You created, uh, th this whole, uh, all the work that you're doing around, you know, your, your core score and, you know, and just everything as, as, as it relates to the, you know, the five areas of your life and, and getting those in check, you know, your mindset, career and finance relationships, physical health, you know, emotional health and, and, and give back all very, very important pieces of the, of the puzzle here for a successful life. Uh, not, not a lot of time to, to dig into it, but can you talk briefly about those four, those five core areas of your life and how yeah. you're applying those teachings to your life now? So what I discovered when I sold my business for about 10 minutes when it hit me and it was like, this is what I've spent the last 10 years of my life working for, for this check that just got wired into my bank account and this feeling. And I'm not going to lie. It was a great, it was a great freaking feeling. Um, but for all of about 10 minutes and then it was like, okay, now what? And fortunately I, I'd been reading, I'd, be, I'd become this insatiable self-help uh, book reader since college. I actually had this rock bottom bounce, which I don't have time to get into, but that's what helped me to start recreating myself in this journey that ironically it was learning about these different areas of life that I eventually ended up putting together and realizing it. We all share these same five core areas of our life. And the way that I look at it is I learned to become a successful entrepreneur in the traditional sense, but really what life's about is becoming a successful entrepreneur of the most important business you're ever going to run, which is your life. And if you don't, if you're just focusing on the money side and the career side, it is, it, it's gratifying, but you're chasing a hollow victory because that money alone is not going to make you happy. But yeah. yes, you want to. And so the career in finances is one of my cores, but it's not just, it's not just about make a sh uh, a, a, an S ton of money. It's make sure you're doing something you really enjoy when you wake up. It's using your strengths, your passions, you've got goals, you've got a purpose, and you're like, yes, 
this is something, you know, and that's what keeps you moving because life is about movement and growth. And if you're not growing, you're dying. But then you've got to also pay attention and balance these other areas because if you're not balancing with your mindset and your relationships and your physical health and your emotional health and you're, and you're not giving back to the world, if you're not leaving the world a better place than when you were in it, uh, than, than, than when you came into it, you're going to be wanting. And I don't care how much money. And you guys have heard it a million times and it, it's the truth, you know, and people say, oh, that's BS. You know, if I had all this money, I, there's no way I'd be unhappy. Trust me from somebody that's been at the very extreme of both ends that it is not the secret to happiness. It definitely is a piece to happiness and that you, you, it's nice to not having to, to worry about where your next meal is coming from and, and, and these things and being able to, you know, live a nice, comfortable lifestyle and make sure your family's taken care of. But you got to balance these other areas. you got to balance your relationships. If you're spending all your time in the office working and you're not working out with your physical health, you're not eating right, you're going to feel like crap. And if yeah. you're not, you know, spending the time with the people you love and proactively trying to build these relationships, building allies, you know, it's, if you're one of these standoffish people that doesn't look people in the eye and maybe you're short term getting ahead in business, eventually it's going to come back to bite you. You got to build allies in life got to build strong partnerships and relationships and even like with my your physical with your 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 significant other like are you butting heads and are you letting your ego constantly get in the way even if you have you're making a zillion dollars you're not going to be happy if you're not in a good relationship i don't know if either of you guys are married but uh yep. or, so you we know what i'm are. talking about <laughs> right to if, each other if you're, if happy wife happy life right I mean, if you're not in a good if you're not on the same page with your spouse and and, it, and all these things take work and they all take discipline. Yeah. And that's what I mentioned at the start of the show. And I'll end it here because I know we're out of time. It's about shining a spotlight on your life and saying, what are the failure habits I've developed in each one of these core areas? And what do I need to replace them with? What are the success habits? And these are ones that are based on, to me, universal principles. Like I said, I've, I've read a ton of books. And at the end of the day, life is complex. Principles aren't. And there's principles that have been around since the beginning of time and that'll be around till the end and if you base yeah. your life on the things that you know that have been proven to make you happy and you just get the discipline to make sure that you continue to follow through until it becomes part of you and these become habits and success habits and you're building more positive and negative momentum then you will be happy and live your best yeah. life yeah i appreciate that and um if you find yourself with uh, with some extra time there on the shore, check out uh, check out my book, What Is Your What, which uh, which is definitely along the lines of uh, the type of reading I think you would enjoy. So we'll hopefully chat nice. more, and uh, we're gonna let you jump here and enjoy the sunshine. Uh, let me give you the opportunity to share where folks can get more information about you, or what would you like them to do? What uh, what's the best next step? So you mentioned your core score. So these five core areas I'm talking about, there's a really simple, quick way to kind of get a, a, a very quick sense of where you stand in each of these core areas. Like I said, it's about shining a spotlight. And if you want to know where you stand uh, at my website, www.moremomentum, that's M-O-O-R-E, like my last name, William Moore, moremomentum.com. Um, there's just a simple tab at the top. It said, what's your core score? There's a little quiz you can take and it'll sort of, at least give you that 10,000 foot view of where you stand in each of your course. And you don't want to try to fix everything right away, right? As humans, that's our tendency. We want to just all of a sudden, I want to be firing on all cylinders and killing it all. No, you got to start with one core, start with the one that you're weakest on, you know, whether it's your physical health, your relationships, your career finance, 
start taking those actions immediately and, and just one or two at a time, you know, say, this is what yeah. I know I need to do to improve it. And then just start building it and to have the discipline to follow through. And I have a system that I help people to develop that. And I'm going to have this app that's coming out in the next six to seven months, which will be really exciting, which is a game. Your partner mentioned gamification. I'm gamifying the whole experience. You're going to be a rocket nice. ship and you've got your five cores as the cylinders of your engine. And the idea is you're continually building momentum. You're building fire and thrust every day and you're balanced. And the more you balance, the faster and further and stronger you get. You go to different planets, different galaxies. You're leveling up your ship. You're meeting different aliens. And the whole per point of it is as you level up on screen, you're also leveling up in real life. And so it's, it's going to be neat. Awesome. All right, Wilmore, we're going to let you jump. And uh, Richie and I will finish up here, man. But again, enjoy the shores there of the inland lakes of, uh, of Michigan. And uh, yeah, man. again, congrats on all your success. Talk to you really soon. Definitely check out everything that Will is up to, and you can get more information there on Will as I mute him out with those beautiful, <laughs> lovely, lovely breezes of the shores of Lake Michigan there, or the inland part of Lake Michigan anyway. But uh, we're going to mute Will out, and we'll just finish up here. So let me, let me just simply say this, um, which is, uh, again, check out moremomentum.com, uh, M-O-O-R-E, Momentum. Dot com and uh, you know, given all the stuff that you do with happiness and, and whatnot, Rich, uh, it seemed like a pretty apropos way to to end that that conversation. What uh, what was your take around that? Oh, I love it. You know, I mean, he's got five core. I got nine, but the five yeah. are within my nine that he was talking about. But it always reminds me, though, when we're talking about money and can't buy happiness. I think part of the part of the problem when it comes to money, unlike the other ones, is uh, it's, it rents it so well that it's easy for people to think <laughs> that that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, hopefully we rented a little bit of happiness for you guys here today. And hopefully uh, we gave you the opportunity to, to, to get an inside look at someone who, you know, and, and, and this is one of the strategies that you can look at uh, from a business perspective, which is a roll-up strategy. And so it's, it's one plus one equals 11, right? I mean, you look at how they went from what they were doing to finding the partners in Gainesville, to finding the partners in Byte, and then into finding the partners, uh, you know, ultimately to, to acquire the company with Waiter Holdings and so on. So as, as a, as a roll-up, as a consortium of companies, at $100 million in revenue, it became much more appealing from an acquisition standpoint than a, a company that was doing 15 or 20 million. Not that there, there couldn't have been an exit at that level, but sometimes, you know, it just begs the question, is, is a smaller piece of a larger pie better for you in the long run as an entrepreneur? And, and for some people, the answer is no. Um, but oftentimes, especially if exiting is on your, on your docket there, on your agenda, part of your goals, your objectives for your business, um, then that might actually be something that is worth exploring. And this is one of the first examples that we've had of someone on talking about a roll-up strategy in terms of partnering and then partnering and then partnering and being acquired. So there's, there's no set way to get to the finish line. You know, ultimately, uh, the finish line is going to be different for all of us. Uh, but in this case, that was a perfect example of how you can get to the finish line simply by partnering 
with others. And, uh, and I really like that approach. So Richie, why don't you take us out and we will talk to you guys next time here on Beyond Eight Figures. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to Beyond Eight Figures. Share your thoughts on today's episode and what you'll apply to your business by emailing us at feedback at beyond8figures.com. And if you haven't already done so, we'd greatly appreciate it if you took a moment now to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Until next time, keep scaling.